So this is the place where I'm supposed to say how happy I am to be back in Chicago, my hometown, with the sun shining and spring is sprung and the trees are budding. And this is the best weekend of the year, right? I know this. You know, I've been suffering in Southern California for 42 years, so <laughs> that one weekend where all of the blooms come out and you are ushered into, into the summer. So that's a bright image. But this is grim business we're going to talk about today, the story of the Wittics. Uh, I, I, I appreciated so much their willingness to step forward and tell their story on the video. And last evening when I was sitting there, I had a, a, a strange worry as I began listening to the video. And I thought to myself, well, I was concerned that this is going to be another triumphant video, okay? It would be a video of someone who went through that hardship and, and their son was healed and here he is today all 100%, 14, 15, 16 years old, he graduated from college, and look at what God did, and that happens sometimes. But most of the time for people who go through things like that, it doesn't happen. I mean, that's just a fact of reality. Most of the time, the ending is more like the Wittigs for us in our lives. And unfortunately, in a certain sense in the church, what the, the stories you usually hear are the triumphant stories, and it's good that we tell those stories. But sometimes there's an imbalance, and we aren't willing to say how it is for most of us that God's purpose in a circumstance like that is different from rescuing us out of the circumstance. His purpose is to carry us through the circumstance. And I was glad for the courage of the Wittics to tell their story and, and, to, and, and to be able to say uh, to, to everybody, sometimes the ending is different and God works differently. I have more to say about that in a moment, but it, it, it just brings back to us the grim reality of this issue, this problem that I want to talk with you about. It reminds me of a movie yeah, 20 years ago now called Sophie's Choice. You might have seen this it's about a Polish woman who had spent some time in Auschwitz, and afterwards, the after-war years, she, re, re, she relates to her lover the terrible choice she had to make in the prison camp, the concentration camp, that changed her life forever. Sophie's played by Meryl Streep. I think this was her first Academy Award, actually. And as she's explaining what happens, she recounts the tragic incident in very calm, even tones. She says, I was arrested. My children were sent with me to Auschwitz. When the train arrived at Auschwitz, the Germans made their selection who would live and who would die. And then as she reflects, there's a flashback, and you can kind of see in sepia tones, there's the, the woman and her children and the German officer in front of her. You may keep one of your children. The other one must go. You mean I have, I have to choose? I, I can't choose. You are a Pole, not a Jew, that gives you a privilege, a choice. I, I can't choose. I can't choose or I'll send them both away. John, my little boy, was sent to children's camp. And my little girl, Eva, was sent to crematorium too. She was exterminated. And then as tears streamed silently down Sophie's face, she said, I knew 
that Christ had turned his face away from me and that only a Jesus who no longer cared for me could kill those people that I loved. And this, I think, in what the Wittics experienced, and in Sophie's terrible choice she was forced to make, I think reflects our deepest fears and doubts about God. Now, what exactly is the problem here? It can be stated in different ways. I'll give you the kind of formal way that people put it. There's an objection against Christian theism, or any theism for that matter, that is meant to show there's an internal contradiction inside of our worldview. You believe in God. You believe God is good. You believe God is powerful. If He was good, He'd want to get rid of the problem of evil. If He was powerful, He'd be able to get rid of the problem of evil. But the problem of evil still persists. Therefore, either God is not good or He's not powerful. He probably doesn't exist at all. And this is why this objection is the most tenacious objection against theism. It's the atheist's favorite argument because it is so rhetorically and emotionally powerful. And it seems the most damaging because, let's face it, if there is a contradiction within our worldview, we're done for. If this goes through, then Christianity certainly is falsified. It's a fatal attack if it succeeds. But you see, I've just given you kind of the philosophical formal problem, and there's more to that, isn't there? Because it isn't just philosophical. The Wittics weren't reflecting on the law of non-contradiction when they faced their tragedy. Uh, Sophie wasn't thinking about the inconsistencies with inside of theism. No, for them, this was personal. It wasn't intellectual. And when, when you and I face tragedy, when you and I cry out, where was God when we are torn with anguish? When we're tempted to think only a Jesus who no longer cared for me that could allow me to go through what I just do, then it's not intellectual. It's personal. When C.S. Lewis, the greatest defender of Christianity in the 20th century, faced his own tragedy, the loss of his, life, his wife, uh, Joy, um, this is where he had his greatest struggle with his own convictions. Now, in his case, he didn't doubt God because he knew too much. He didn't doubt God's existence. He doubted God's goodness. Bertrand Russell, the great 20th century British philosopher, atheist, said, how can you talk about God when you're kneeling at the bed of a dying child? It's powerful. I remember the first time I heard that statement, it just rocked me back on my heels. I thought, what am I going to say to that as a Christian? So let me be clear about something right from the start. I like the way Courtney started, had prayer for people who needed prayer. Some of you sat down, others hovered over them, prayed. I was sitting yesterday. I was one of the people sitting last evening when I was here in the gallery, and people were praying for me because I'm in this with you. I don't approach the problem of evil as a philosopher or as a theologian. I have advanced degrees in both fields, but that's not how I deal with this. I have got to answer the question of the problem of evil for me as a human being who traffics in a fallen world, and I've got to make sense of it in light of whatever view of the world I adopt. But I'm not the only one who has to deal with this problem. And maybe you've not thought about this before, especially if you're not a theist. If you're here today and you're not a theist, I'm glad you're here, and I'm not going to try to convert you. 
I do hope I annoy you, though, in a good way. I want to put a stone in your shoe, all right? I want to... I'm not the only person, Christians are not the only people, theists are not the only people who have to deal with the problem of evil. If you're an atheist and you have rejected God because of evil in the world, I understand that. That makes perfect sense to me. I get it. But you have not escaped the problem of evil. You haven't gotten rid of the problem. You've just gotten rid of one possible solution, God. Getting rid of God, you're still stuck with the problem. Now as an atheist, a materialist, or whatever other worldview have you adopted, you've adopted, now what do you do with the problem of evil? Because it's still right there staring you in the face. And so my challenge now as a human being and as a Christian standing for Christianity is to ask the question, what worldview does the best job dealing with the problem? I don't suspect that any view is going to tie up all the loose ends because this is a gnarly issue, no question. But I want to suggest to you that there are some worldviews that, that, that can't even make sense of the problem. Given the reality of evil so profound that, that it's, the, the objection is on everybody's lips at one time of their life or another. What worldview then does the best job of answering the question. What worldview makes sense of the issue to begin with and then gives a resolution to the issue? That is the question that I want you to consider. And the way I want to proceed is I want to make a few points I think will simplify the problem immensely. And I want you to see that ironically the problem itself gives us some clues about the answer. And I, I want to show that on the Christian worldview. So this has got to be answered from inside of some view of reality, okay? Inside the worldview that I hold and most of you do as well, there is no contradiction. And then I want to show what God is actually doing to solve the problem of evil from the inside. When you ask the question, where is God? I want to say he's right in the thick of it. And what I want you to see when the dust settles, I want you to see that the answer to the problem of evil is not atheism. The answer to the problem is just the opposite. The answer to evil is God, specifically God in Jesus on a cross at Calvary. Well, stay with me. It's going to be a little bit of complexity here, but I'll hold your hand. Let's, what about those clarifying points? Here's the first point. Evil is something. Evil is something, and you're thinking, thank you very much. It took a degree in philosophy to figure that one out. That's why we're complaining. Evil is something. Well, it's actually a profound observation in light of a trend in our culture because there are a lot of people who are pushing back against Christianity who are saying, you know, when it comes to good and bad, right and wrong, morality, it's just an individual opinion. You have your morality, I have my morality. That culture has their point of view, their own social contract. We have our social contract. We shouldn't be judging other cultures. We shouldn't be judging individuals. We should let every person live the way they choose to live according to their own conscience. You've heard this before, right? 
It's got a fancy name. It's called relativism, moral relativism. You might not have heard the term before, but you know the concept because I just described it. You bump into it all the time when you're trying to make your case as a follower of Christ regarding some moral issue, right? And people say, you shouldn't be judging. You should be tolerant, which means letting other people live according to their own morality. Okay, now I just want to make an observation. This is the claim that there is no objective absolute universal set of standards that apply equally to everybody, all right? It's a denial of those things. It's the claim that when it comes to right and wrong, it's only individual preference because that's all you can ever say. So you're familiar with that. What I want you to see is if that's the case, and for the sake of argument, it might be, maybe morality doesn't exist in the big sense. Well, then you're welcome to your relativism, but you are not welcome to the problem of evil. Because in order for there to be a problem of evil, there has got to be evil in the world, not just in your head. Do you see that? The problem of evil is an acknowledgement that there must be some standard. It's implicitly an acknowledgement that there's some standard that governs everybody that a whole bunch of people violate. Those people shouldn't have done that. How could God allow people to cut off the heads of children in the name of real? How, if God is good, how could he allow this, that, and the other thing? Wait, wait a minute. These other things you're talking about, are those things actually evil, or is it just your personal opinion that you don't like those, but somebody else might like it, and that's okay too? Do you know how? I, notice how I'm playing the relativist card on him right now. If you want to be a relativist, then that's just your personal opinion. Okay, I get it, but then there's no evil, right? There are just differences of opinion. In order for there to be an objective standard of, uh, rather, uh, uh, real evil in the world, and therefore the complaint, there's got to be an objective standard. Let me put it another way. I use this illustration around the country, and I make reference to Chicagoans. Because my question is, how many people here bowl? And you don't have to raise your hand, but I tell people, you know, no, and when I'm in Southern California, which is where I live, that people, nobody wants to admit that they bowl. <laughs> right? They're golfers, right? We don't bowl, you know. But I see the bowling alley, so somebody's bowling in Southern California. <laughs> but I know in the Chicago, everybody bowls, you know, and you, you're happy you're wearing bowling shirts, for goodness sake. So how do you know a good bowler from a bad bowler? That's my question. Is it the, uh, wow, look at that. Because you look really fine and throw gutter balls, right? That means you're a loser. But you can look awful and knock all the pins down. You're a good bowler, right? So what's, how do you know a good bowler from a bad bowler? The score. The score. Good and bad are terms relative to a score. So when we think, say there is evil in the world, we are saying there are behaviors that people do that get a low score on the moral meter. Make sense? Implicitly, that's involved. Now, relativists deny that there's a moral meter out there. Therefore, there's no violation of the moral meter. Therefore, there can't be any evil. What morality amounts to, good and bad, if you're a relativist, is just a personal preference. 
I like one thing, he likes another thing. I like abortion, you don't like abortion. I like premarital sex, you don't like premarital sex. This is the way it's characterized. Well, if you don't like it, then don't do it. But I like it, so I should be allowed to do it because that's my morality, you have yours. By the way, to me, that's as morally sound as saying if you don't like slavery, don't own one. See the problem there in some cases. In any event, the problem of evil, if you believe that, which a lot of people do, they're relativists, or at least talk like that, it, complaining about the problem is like saying, I can't believe in God. Why not? Brussels sprouts. Brussels sprouts? What's up with that? You ever taste those things? They're disgusting, which I happen to agree with, it, you know. But some of you guys like them, you know, I know that. Some, so some people prefer it and some people don't. The guy said, I can't believe in a God who could make something that tastes so disgusting to me. <laughs> now you're laughing because it's a silly objection, but that's what the objection amounts to if you're inclined to say there is no objective morality. It's one or the other. There either is objective morality and therefore you can have the problem of evil or there's no objective morality and you can have your relativism but you can't have the problem of evil. So what's it going to be? But it's actually worse than that. To be honest, a relativist can't get in the game. But I think the problem of evil is proof positive that morality is objective. And we all know it, which is why we spontaneously object when we see gratuitous examples of evil in the world. But see, now there's another problem. And the problem is, if you're going to say, okay, yeah, there must be objective morality, that is, there must be a standard of good and evil, a scoring system, before our objections about evil are even coherent. And that's the point here. That's all I'm doing so far. Then my question is, where did the objective standard come from? Where did the transcendent, universal, objective, absolute standard of right and wrong that you see violated when you complain about the problem of evil, where did that come from? And I'm just going to tell you, I've done a lot of work on this, that it's going to be impossible to make sense of an objective moral law without a transcendent moral lawmaker. That is, you can only have a problem of evil if there is an objective standard of good and evil, and you can only have an objective standard of good and evil if there is a God that establishes it. So this is a very unusual circumstance where people think that the problem of evil is one of the best arguments against God, and I think it's one of the best arguments for God. Because if there is no God, there is no standard, and if there is no standard, there are no violations, and if there are no violations, there is no evil. But clearly, evil exists. There are violations, so there must be a standard, therefore there must be a standard maker. This is called the moral argument for the existence of God. It's been around a long time. But maybe you haven't been aware of it. Now, that doesn't answer the problem of evil. What it shows is that the problem of evil itself has ramifications for how we see the world. The problem of evil only makes sense in a, in a theistic worldview of some sort. It does not make sense in a materialistic world at all.
Lewis said, my argument against God was that the universe seems so cruel and unjust. But how had I gotten this idea of just and unjust? A man does not call something crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. What was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? He, he said, at another time, I could have just given up my idea of justice by saying it was nothing but my own private idea. But if I did that, then my argument against God collapsed too, for the argument depended on saying that the world was really unjust and not simply that I did not happen, it did not happen to please my private fantasies. Now, let me just take a, a side here because I know the pushback, and the pushback is is Darwinian evolution. Well, we don't need God because we've got Darwin. Um, this is not going to work. Let me make a note here. Go to str.org, str.org. That's our website for Stand to Reason. And about a year and a half ago, I wrote an article called God, Evolution, and Morality. You can check that out, God, Evolution, and Morality, part one and part two. But in part one, I address this very thoroughly. But let me give you the, the quick study on it, all right? Evolution is a materialistic process, okay? All it is is reorganization of molecules. And maybe that's the way things really took place, okay? I'm not going to take that on right now. I don't believe it's the case. But, but let's just say it was. Do you realize that no reorganization of material things can cause an immaterial moral obligation to pop into existence? All that evolution can do, if it can do anything in the area of morality, is make us believe in morality it cannot make things wrong. It can cause us to think in moral terms because somehow this allows us to get our genes into the next generation. But it cannot make rape and murder and torture wrong in themselves. Actually, evolution is just another relativistic type of morality. We could have evolved differently to believe other things are right and wrong depending on the biology. But does it not seem that the things that I just described are wrong in their selves regardless of how anybody evolved? No, evolution is not going to help you, neither the social contract. They are both relativistic ways of talking about morality. And if, if morals are just relativistic in any way, the problem of evil simply disappears. So I've said so far that evil is something, and just reflecting on the nature of the problem eliminates two options for us, it seems to me. Certainly, it eliminates relativism. And it also seems to eliminate atheism because there is no other way to account for the standard by which we object on the problem of evil without a transcendent lawmaker. Here's my second point. I said that evil is something. Now I want to say evil is not something. <laughs> Sounds like double talk, but it's not. It's an important distinction. Because someone wants to say, okay, smarty pants, God created all things, evil's a thing, so God created evil, so you're stuck again. So let me ask you a question, because I don't think evil's a thing. But how do you make sense of that? Very easy. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever eaten a donut hole? I don't mean one of those little round gut bombs you get after church, you know. And you... Have you ever eaten a donut hole? You say... How can I eat in a donut hole? There's nothing to eat. The donut hole is where the donut ain't. 
right? Now, it seems intelligible to talk about donut holes, but the philosophers would say donut holes do not have ontological status. They don't have being. It, it's, it's a, donut holes are a way of describing something that is missing. We say the same thing with shadows, you know. We look at a shadow. A shadow is not a thing. It's a description of something missing. Light is missing in this particular case. Well, evil is like that. Evil is not a thing. It's like a hole in goodness, a shadow that results when goodness is missing. And when you think about the words we use to describe evil, like unrighteousness, impurity, lawlessness, notice how all of those words capture the sense that something that's supposed to be there isn't. There's a privation of sorts. Even the word in Greek that is translated sin, hamartia, is a word that it means missing the target. So, so our understanding of evil then is that evil is not the way things are supposed to be. They were supposed to be one way, and now there's a change, and this change results in this awful state of affairs. So whence evil? Where did evil come from? Then how, how, how do you explain the ex whatever the evil is, the privation? How do you make sense of that? Now, I'm going to do that, but I'm going to do that from inside of a worldview. We can talk about evil based on our common experience because we all experience it, and I've set out some things that have to be in place for there to be a problem of evil at all. There's got to be real evil, which means there's got to be a standard, which seems to point to God, okay? Um, but when you ask the question, why is there this condition, now you've got to step into an explanatory system. A, a view of reality that explains how that fits in. And now we're coming to that point I mentioned earlier about the, the battle of worldviews and where I've, I've made the point that we have to look at which worldview does the best job of explaining this thing. And, and, and so I'm going to give a response now from inside of the Christian worldview to help you to see its explanatory power. I have two little girls. Um, I have a 10-year-old and a 7-year-old, and I know you're, some of you are thinking, he's got a 7-year-old? He's an old guy. That's really weird. Yeah, my, my daughters just had birthdays a couple of months ago, and my birthday is in June, June 10, and I, I, that's my Medicare birthday, okay, just so you know. <laughs> I, I don't even want to say the, the number. It's just too depressing, Okay. And I, you're thinking, what is that poor guy going to do when that seven-year-old becomes a teenager, right? And I'm thinking, if I'm lucky, I'll be dead by then. <laughs> so my 10-year-old, my, my who's, who's a Christian, um, she, she, when she was eight, she was asking the question, Papa, why does, why, how do we know God is true, is the way she put it. And I thought about it for a second. got to explain this. You know, I'm an apologist. You know, so how do I explain it to the eight-year-old? And it just came right off the top of my head. I mean, I think it's a good one for adults, too. Now, That's why I'm offering it to you. The reason I said that we believe in God is because He's the best explanation for the way things are. <laughs> Let me say that again, because you, you can take this to the bank. The reason we believe in God is because He's the best explanation for the way things are. And I want to show you the explanatory power of the Christian worldview in dealing with the problem of evil. What does our story say about an explanation for the problem of evil. 
It says that evil's an intruder, and this is my third point. First, evil is something. Second, it's not something. Third, it's an intruder. It's, <clears throat> it's not part of the original plan. The original plan was great. But something man did caused the problem. What 10, 11, oh, here, seven times, I got it in my notes. Seven times in the opening to our account, the beginning of our story, it says that what God made was good, it was good, it was good, it was good. Now I think about it, seven is the number of perfection, so that's probably why they had that number, is making another point. Everything was just right. It was just the way God intended. Everything was working together perfectly. It was fabulous. And then something happened. Man who is made to be in friendship with God and enjoy that relationship in thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand are pleasures forever. That's what it was in the beginning as long as they stayed in the proper relationship. And then man said, no, I want to do it my own way. I want to be captain of my own ship. I want to run my own life. I know better. You're holding out on me. Bye. And when man did that, when man disobeyed, when he, he broke relationship with God, everything else got broken at the same time. Man's relationship with God, man's relationship with other human beings, man's relationship to his environment, everything went south. And see, now I'm talking about man in the abstract here, like man, Adam and Eve, way back when, man. No, I don't mean man, I mean you and I. We're the ones who consistently do the same thing. And by the way, you know this when you have children, right? You tell your children, this is right, this is wrong. They go, I don't get it. You say, trust me, I get it, trust me. And when they don't trust you and they disobey you and they break that relationship, they break other things at the same time, don't they? Sometimes they're, you know, your tools <laughs> or other physical things or other, they break their souls. Well, their relationships, same thing here. Evil is the description of a moral wound and ethical injury that was self-inflicted when man rebelled against God's leadership. Our story calls it sin. We don't need to use the word. It's a good word. But even if you don't like the word, you still know what it is because you experience it every single day. And this means we are not just victims, we are victimizers. We live in a world we crippled, and a crippled world produces crippled people and crippled circumstances. So evil is something, but it's not something. It's an intruder that we brought. What made it possible? This is my fourth point. And this takes me to, this, to the contradiction proper, the alleged contradiction. What is it that made this possible? I'll tell you what made this possible. Something good made evil possible. Something good made evil possible. The thing that was good is that God created human beings with moral freedom, which is like God. We are not like the rest of the animal kingdom. We have a quality like God that allows us to have a relationship with Him, a friendship with Him, which is a good thing, but we did not use the freedom well. And because of that good thing ill-used, there is the problem of evil. Now, you might be thinking, well, wait a minute. Why couldn't God have just made us good and had moral freedom but kept us from ever doing anything bad? How about that? I was trying to explain this to a group of students in the Ukraine a number of years ago. <clears throat> had a translator. 
There's a young man sitting in the front of the audience. His name was Vito. And uh, Vito was a big, muscular guy. Actually, his name was Vitali, but I had a hard time saying that, and I'm from Chicago, so I just call him Vito. I don't think there are any Vitos on the West Coast, but Chicago's got a number of them. So. And so I said, Vito, here, I got a paper clip here. Can you bend this paper clip into a square? He said, duh. I had a translator. So he took the paper clip and he kind of bent it into a square, that wire thing, and like I'm doing now. And Okay, he did all right with the square. There you go. Good. Okay, Vito, can you, another, can you bend this into a circle for me? Yeah, duh. And he starts bending it around. Now, I got to admit, after being a square, it makes a kind of bumpy circle. But he did all right. Okay, there it is. One more thing, Vito. Can you please bend that paperclip into a square circle? Yet. What do you mean, yet? I thought you were strong. I thought you were powerful. You're not strong enough to bend this simple paperclip into a square circle. Of course, you see the problem. The problem is not one of strength. You could have an infinite amount of power. You can't bend that paperclip into a square circle because the concept is contradictory. And this is precisely what you face when you ask, why couldn't God make a morally free creature that couldn't go wrong? Because moral freedom just is the possibility of using that freedom for ill. Once you realize that, you realize there's no contradiction. If God is going to make a good kind of creature to be in relationship with him, there's something else that goes with the package, and that's the possibility of going bad. No contradiction. Not on our system. Maybe somebody else's system. Not on ours. There is no contradiction. But we can do better than that. Remember I said earlier that Everyone has to deal with the problem of evil. And the real question is, what worldview offers the best explanation? I want to go back to Bertrand Russell for a minute. Remember that powerful, debilitating statement, how can you talk about God when you're kneeling at the bed of a dying child? Then I heard William Lane Craig, the Christian philosopher's response. And William Lane Craig said, what is the atheist Bertrand Russell going to say when he's kneeling at the bed of a dying child? Tough luck? That's the way it goes? Too bad? Because that's all the atheist has. There is nothing left for them. They are struck dumb while kneeling at the bed of a dying child. No happy ending, no silver lining. Nothing like what the Wittics were able to reflect on, even tearfully. Nothing but devastating, senseless evil. Because they can't speak of the patience and mercy of God. They can't mention the future perfection that awaits all who trust in Christ. They cannot offer the comfort that a redemptive God is working to cause all things together for good for those who love Him and for those who called according to His purpose. They have no good news for a broken world. Their worldview denies them nothing but tormented silence. And here, let me, I'm going to risk going over a minute or two, but i got to tell you this right now. It's not in my notes. This is something a lot of Christians don't realize, and it goes with the introduction, where I talked about most of us don't get that rescue. Most of us are like the Wittics. We suffer through it, and we wonder why. 
Well, Paul gives the answer. It's in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, the last two verses, 16 through 18. So just mark it. And here's what he says, and I have to say it slowly because it's easy to miss the significance. For Paul has just described his own life. There in chapter 4 and later on in further chapters, and all that he's gone through, 39 lashes three times, beaten with rods, stoned and left for dead in Lystra, three days and three nights in the deep, threatened by robbers, threatened by the Jews, in trouble everywhere he went. And how did he sum this up? Here it is. For momentary light affliction. What? Momentary light? That sounds like anything but light, but he's making a comparison. For momentary light affliction is producing for us. Now, the verb's important. It is the affliction that is accomplishing something. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not at the things that are, but at the things that will be. For the things that are, these are temporal, these are perishing, but the things that will be are eternal. That is, through the, in the midst of all of this difficult time, God is taking those hardships. He is not the, as one teacher I had early on as a Christian said, he's not the bridge over troubled waters, but he will pull you through the troubled waters if you can stand the toe. That's what he's doing. And that is a mercy. And if you've been around long enough and been through enough of these things, you know it's a mercy and it's a gift. And so I want to very briefly here at the end expand on this notion, what is God actually doing about evil? God is doing, well, actually four things. He's, remember I said he's right in the thick of it? He's doing four things very quickly. First, he's given us institutions that will mitigate or lessen the impact of evil in the world. Those institutions are the family, the government, and the church. Now, I can't talk long about this. Let me just say it. God has a purpose for the family and for the government and for the church, okay? You mess with that purpose and you mess with reality. You mess with that purpose and the protections of those institutions begin to disappear. You mess with the family, you mess with the government in terms of God's purpose, which is justice, the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who are right. That's the main purpose. That's to protect us. You mess with that. You mess, if the church doesn't fulfill its obligation in the world as it ought, you're going to have more evil in the world. You ignore God's guidelines in this, you're asking for trouble. You sow to the wind, you reap the whirlwind. I wish I could say more about that. I can't. I'd love to say a whole lot more about that. I'm just saying. So God has given us those institutions. Secondly, you want to deal with evil, you're concerned about the problem of evil, why don't you start with yourself? If you're so concerned about the problem of evil, why don't you ask God to help you deal with evil in your own life? God's Holy Spirit is offered to anyone who asks. Walk in the Spirit, you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. And then there's a nasty list there in Galatians 5 of all the things that we do. You want to overcome those in your own life? Ask God. He will help you. And I guarantee you there are people all over this auditorium who have done just that and got on their knees and beat their breasts and said, God, help me, forgive me, take my life, change it, and pow, 
Well, sometimes not just pouch, sometimes over time, but still, transformation. You know what I'm talking about. You want God to deal with evil? Start at home. That's the second thing He's done. Give us a spirit to help deal with the evil in our own life. The third thing is there will come a time when God will take care of all the evil from the earth. You see, evil is part of our story. It's right there in the beginning. And the whole story is really an answer to the problem of evil. It's part of our story. And our story's not over yet. And at the end of our story, everything will be resolved. And all the good will be restored. But C.S. Lewis has said, I wonder whether people who ask God to interfere openly and directly in our world quite realize what it will be like when He does. (laughs) Why didn't God take care of evil? When the author walks on the stage, the play's over. During the Jesus movement, we had a good news, bad news joke. Good news, Jesus is coming back. Bad news, he's mad. (laughs) If God were to deal with evil tonight at midnight, where would you be at 1201? You see, our prints are on the smoking gun. We're the guilty ones. And so the fourth thing that God has chosen to do about evil is he sent his son to die for evil evil men and women. That is, he is not slow regarding his promise of coming to deal with the problem of evil. That's what Peter's talking about in 2 Peter. He's not slow. He's long-suffering. He's waiting, not willing for any to perish, but for all to come to salvation. When he comes, he's going to judge. And it's Jesus who's going to judge. Until then, he's offering the hand of friendship, the hand of mercy, the hand of forgiveness. He's offering a pardon for those who will take it. And so it may be that the reason that God hasn't dealt with evil yet is because of you. He's waiting for you. Or maybe he's waiting for your friend or a family member. He's offering forgiveness. I think at the end of this reflection, a couple of things are more clear. If there is no God, we'd have to give up the idea that evil exists at all. Nothing ultimately bad, nothing good either. It's all lost in a twilight of moral nothingness. If God were to come back today, well, we wouldn't fare very well. What we'd really want, I think, with regards to the problem of evil is we'd want a God who took evil seriously. He provided a way to protect us from evil without taking away our choices. We'd want a God who gives an opportunity for mercy rather than judgment. We'd want a a God who had a plan for ultimately dealing with evil. Here's another thing we'd want. We'd want a God who got with us, who stood by us. You know our God, the God of the Bible, our story, that God came down. He didn't just stay up there and give us commands, tell us how to live. He came down. He became a man. He walked with us. He lived the life that we were supposed to live but didn't. And then he took the punishment that we deserved that he did not so that we could receive the mercy of God rather than the judgment of God. Jesus is there with us. He's with the Wittics. They know it firsthand. Many of you know this as you've walked through life. He's there with you. That's the answer to the problem of evil. The answer isn't atheism. The answer is God. In Jesus, on a cross, at Calvary, God himself has solved the problem of evil.
Thank you. Father, thank you. This applause is a rejoicing that you are the answer, that you are the answer to our deepest concerns, our deepest questions. We look at the problem of evil and we understand. It's there because you've made a moral world that we have rebelled within and you extend mercy and forgiveness to make us right with you and someday you'll make it all right. And I pray for anybody here who does not know you that they, in their heart, bend their knee and beat their breast and say, God, I'm guilty. Forgive me, a sinner. Have mercy on me, Lord Jesus, a sinner. And for us struggling through this difficult time, being pulled through the troubled waters, help us to hang on regardless of the toe. Help us to honor you in the midst of all of our difficulties. For Christ's sake, amen.